Manner of Speaking with Greg Mayu. Today's episode Pandora's Box Opened. I actually was playing hooky from school one day and I was on my bike and I rode down the side alley of a movie theater and the projectionist had his door open up on the roof. This was in Long Island, this was Merrick, this was the Merrick Mall Theater, which is no longer there. I lived in Merrick for a part of my youth. There were three theaters in town. They're all gone, not a one. But this one time I was riding through the alley there and the guy had his door open and I heard the projector noise. I had no idea why I did what I did because it was out of character, but I put my bike up against the side of the building and creeped up the fire stairs and poked my head in to find a projectionist who was, as usual, socially starved. And so here was a curious kid who was asking, wow, look at the size of those machines. And uh, it was Pandora's box open. He couldn't wait to share, and I couldn't wait to learn. And then I you know, became the AV captain in school, went to school to learn about projectors and AV, and got my license and joined the union and been having a pisser ever since. I gotta go check the other side. This is Mike Katz, a projectionist at the Bam Row Cinema in Brooklyn. Despite the fact that I was late to meet him because I waited in the wrong lobby, and the fact that he appeared to be juggling three jobs at once, he agreed to chat with me in the projection booth for a little while, which was pretty exciting for me since I've never been in one. And unlike a lot of projection booths in the city, this one is still running actual film. What film is this? This is The Incredible Shrinking Man classic black and white movie they're watching tonight. Film for you youngsters. And if you've never seen film in black and white projected on a screen in a theater with other people, you're never gonna get it at home. Anyway, this is the first two reels of a five reel movie and I'm just taking it apart. I had uh, two reels together for convenience because I have other things going on in the place so I can't be married to this, so the more time I buy for myself, the more time I can be elsewhere. I was about to say, as I got into this towards the end of the actual era, I got into this like the very late 70s where there were still carbon arc projectors, old technology similar to welding. If you ever passed a big building with iron work going on it and you see big bright flashes of blue light, that's arc welding. I came in when there were probably about four or five thousand projectionists working still in the... And that was my radio for those of you who don't know. Very important information that I know they need change at the box office. Any case, uh, there were so many projectionists because there were still so many theaters and there really weren't that many multiplexes. Like I mentioned here before, one guy, 16 screens. So instead of that, the old formula was there were 16 separate theaters with a the whole crew. Now you have one big theater, 
with four guys. So if you do the math, there's that many people that, bye-bye. But when I came into it, it was from the old days where there were still all the big barns, as we call them, big movie theaters with multiple balconies. 42nd Street was lined up with them. I worked in a lot of those theaters where, you know, you would climb up balconies and trap doors and ladders and catwalks to get to your booth. You'd lock yourself in there all day because back in the day when you ran Carbonox, you weren't allowed out of the booth for obvious safety reasons and for laws on the books. That's why projectionists are licensed. Not because you run film projectors, because anybody can do that, even kids in school. But because you have New York City fire laws, you were dealing with old nitrate, flammable film from the old days, and couple that with the carbon ox, and you were just inviting a fire. So a lot of projectionists in the old days died. Nobody knew about it. There's no plaques erected for them. There were tons of theater fires. And all the old projection booths were made of uh, steel or asbestos and all the front ports in, in the booth, all the windows to the theater, all had steel shutters above them with solder fuse links, which when the temperature reached a certain level, the links would break and the shutters would drop down and seal the room, hermetically seal it. You know, when they went into the booth, they found three spots on the floor, basically. Two projectors and one what was the projectionist, because that's how the fires used to be so intense with nitrate film, and oily oil and grease and plus it was fed with air being at the top of the building air would so it was not a pretty picture so wait did you know anybody who um who died I know in many fire? people that have died not many people from tragedy a lot of the old timers were friends being found in the booth dead from a heart attack you know the next show didn't start or uh poor health because it's not the greatest thing in the world to be around these lamp houses, they emit high electromagnetic fields, the old carbon ox, they put off, you know, dangerous acrid smoke, and while all the manufacturers claim that they're ozone-free bulbs, I dare anybody to take an ozone meter and measure it because I know what ozone smells like, most people do. It's that smell that you get after it rains and you buy the electric on the railroad tracks and you can smell that sweet smell, that's ozone. That's bad. And so in the booth, when you smell that from an ozone-free lamp, you know, it's like anything else in this country. Not exactly what the label says. So ozone-free bulbs, forget about it. So do you have any immediate concerns about your health as a result of this job? Uh, um, like most people, I have a huge denial mechanism and, you know, the money's pretty good and I have no immediate detrimental effects, but I did wonder years ago when I was trying to listen to the ball game and I was having no problem listening to it on the radio and then I went over and turned my lamp house on and all I had was static. So one doesn't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that that lamp house is giving off something that's blocking the signal to the radio. Years later, when I had snuck TVs into the booth, same effect. You know, you would turn on the lamp house and the picture would go snowy. And then you do some reading and you read about the high EMF and then you realize, well, it's not something that, 
you know, the layperson has to deal with because this is a professional industry, you're licensed, and it's a job hazard, tough. You know, if this was something that was, you know, like a baby car seat or something, you know, all the whistleblowers would have been on it right away. But since I may or may not glow in the dark, I don't know. I can't worry about it now. But uh, we do work with a lot less asbestos in the booth. We do have a lot more safety measures, the main one being no more nitrate film. Uh, and, of course, you know, you really shouldn't have long hair in the booth and all the obvious things. Yeah, a few stories of people getting their hair cut in the projectors, and that wasn't pleasant. Yes, use your imagination. It's as bad as two girls fighting outside a nightclub, going at each other, ripping their hair out. It's, it's not pretty. Anyway, like I said, I came in and saw a lot of that stuff to where now there's very few projectionists. Yeah, it's a completely different industry in the commercial theaters now. When I came in, you still had the old school. The guys were very strong in their union. Management wasn't uh, as invasive in the booth. Management was a little more respectful. And it's kind of like pretty much the reverse now where, you know, if there is a projectionist, they don't respect, they don't have any territory anymore that stares the rooms. Projectionist is usually hated by everybody, period. Usually it's for frivolous reasons like they think he makes or she makes too much money because they've accidentally seen their check in the office. Most of the time they come upstairs, they see the wrong end of the formula. The formula being it's usually about 80% boredom and relaxation and 20% sheer terror similar to a cockpit mentality. You try and live in the 80%. Nobody ever comes up and sees the 20%, okay? Because they're usually downstairs handling the repercussions of that. When it's crazy up here, you gotta be on your game. Since they never come up here and see that, they usually see you not doing much, and so they think you're overpaid, underworked, and they hate you. And then all you need to do is add a couple of jerk projectionists, which there are plenty of, and then it's very easy to understand why they polarize the situation. So then you, the nice guy who's competent and knows what you're doing, walks into a situation that's been created for you. And you can either, you know, fight it and it's an uphill battle. Or you can be like, you know, here, I'm just doing my job and I can't get into the drama. Depends who you are. You know I me? Mean? I'm not being short with people, but I mostly come to make money and not friends. Once the job is done and everybody's happy, like the campers, they all had their meals, they're all tucked in, and then we can have fun socializing and get into some of the fun drama that creates all the extracurricular stories. But for the most part, you're only as good as your last show. I've worked some of the biggest theaters. I've been chief of Lincoln Square. I've been on Broadway. I've worked on many, many major shows from working with Ridley Scott to Spike Lee. You name it, I've done it. And... You're only as good as your last show. And if you're doing your job, nobody should or would know about you. And that's the end of the story, really, there. As a projectionist, nobody really knows much about it because most of them were doing their job. The ones that didn't, that's what you heard about. Yeah, you got pretty much some of the uh, behind the scenes history because anybody else who would tell you about the old days, they're dead or they're incoherent, they can't even remember. But don't forget, you still have something called booth disease. Anybody, 
Just ask the guys that used to be incarcerated at Alcatraz. Booth disease. When you're in a tiny room with no light and no socializing, you tend to go crazy. And that's what happened to the guys at Solitary and Alcatraz. And that's what I've seen happen to some projectionists. And probably toll booth collectors too. Any job where your job is monotonous and you're by yourself, unless you really got your head squarely screwed on, can't be good for you. Are there any film screenings that you recall that were like the most exciting for you to be involved in as a projectionist? Like... Uh, not really. I've been doing this 35 years. So, you know, running 70 millimeter prints of back in the day. Uh, a good moment would be back in the day when I was working on a theater showing Ghostbusters, the original, Star Trek, the original, and Star Wars, the original, okay? Big theaters, all 70 millimeter prints, lines around the block, killer sound, killer picture. Only way to see a movie. And I was there when Dolby Digital first came out. I was in the theater where it was with Dracula. And they started just selling tickets round the clock and didn't even tell the booth. And they added a couple shows, so we thought we were doing 11 o'clock at night and then uh, one o'clock in the morning. And getting ready to leave and they, told us, we just sold for the three and the five o'clock, they're sold out and there's still a line around the block. So, you know, all these psychos, not the usual ones that camp outside of a theater to watch Star Wars, you know, three days in advance. But I mean, Dracula, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the one with Gary Oldman. I mean, the TV show is called Hotel, you know, every kind of personality walks through the lobby. It's the same thing in a movie theater, especially in New York, I mean, then there are the people that go to the movies by themselves, and then there are the ones that don't or can't, and you know, everybody comes to the movies for many different reasons and not always to see the movie. And I don't judge. You know, there are some people that uh, go to work and then go to the movies, you know? Many people, you know, do what they're not supposed to do in theaters, and that happens a lot, I guess. You know, so I'm kind of jaded. I don't spend too much time looking out the window at the back of people's heads unless, you know, there's something going on. So tell me some examples of that that you've witnessed firsthand. Everything from having uh, some guy wrestled to the ground in the middle of the theater because he had a handgun and was going after his girlfriend to the same thing with cops when I was working years later at Lincoln Square where like, Five cops came into the booth and were all trying to squeeze their heads in the little porthole to look out into the auditorium because there was a pervert who was fondling women or taking their pocketbooks and they wanted to spy him from the booth so it was pretty amusing all of them trying to get their heads in a little space that only would fit one. It was like Keystone Cops. People getting sick, bring up the house lights, somebody tripping, uh, you know, a sprinkler pipe lyrics, part of the screen fell down, they're having a fight. And Mikey Food is here. Put that on hold if you want. Thanks, I'll be right there. I'll be right back. I very important. I gotta take care of this.
How are you, buddy? How are you? Good. What do you got there? Uh, 1650. Thank you, Mike. Once Mike stepped out, it gave me a minute to really look around the booth. I liked how lived in it feels. Like the space really belongs to Mike. Near the entrance to the booth is a bed uh, with sheets but no blankets and strewn across it are a half dozen film reels. To my left is an editing station with a splicer and some reel cranks and you know shelves full of film supplies. And to my right is a desk. Uh, it's very cluttered with the computer on it, the monitor running a feed of every surveillance camera in the theater. And next to the monitor are about five or six phone numbers scribbled in pen on the wall as if they were jotted down in a hustle when there was no post-it note, where the numbers are so vital that no post-it note will do. And scattered across the desk are several empty takeout cartons and a bottle of obsession cologne. Later on, I asked Mike about the mattress, if he actually sleeps here sometimes, and he said no, it's just for sex. All right, now you're gonna have to bear with me. Oh, okay. Otherwise, I'll get grouchy later. What'd you end up getting? Um, because my day is so late, I actually am having breakfast now. This morning, and all I got was a cup of soup, and I've been so busy because I've been uh, test screening some stuff. Later on after this, I have a compilation program of shorts, silent stuff with the piano player, and I got like 16, 35 DVDs, all kinds of video, a compilation of everything. So I was kind of like rehearsing that this afternoon. In between trying to, you know, fix a few things, run a few things, and then my other regular show started, so I've been like, not really playing catch-up, but every moment normally where I had free to, you know, assimilate my thoughts and move on to the next, I don't have that much time in between, so I'm like, you know, like an airport runway, one plane taking off after the next, sometimes it's a lull, other times it's like back-to-back -back craziness. So here we are. Normally this would have been breakfast at the normal time, like around 9 to 10 o'clock. And it's like almost 7.45 in the evening now, Eastern Standard Time. I wouldn't even be eating now. I would have had my dinner already, and that would have been it. Because this business is notorious for eating at bad hours when it's bad for you. Do you have enough time for like one more question? One more question and I'm tossing you. All right. Um, what, if, what pops into your mind if you think of like the movie that got you into movies? The movie that got me into movies? Probably Journey to the Center of the Earth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is James Mason. Come along with Pat Boone and me, Arlene Dahl, Diane Baker, and Gertrude the Duck and discover sights and sounds and wonders no living man has ever witnessed before. Filmed in the incomparable magic of CinemaScope. When I was a kid, it used to be 50 cents to get into the movies. And I had a twin sister when I was younger, she passed on, but uh, we used to be dumped off at the movie theater on Saturday morning and that's the best way a parents could get rid of you for the day. They give us each a dollar it was 50 cents to get into the movie. I would run right down to the front row to be the first. You'd hold on to your ticket stub because at the end of the movie they'd raffle off uh, a pizza pie or ice cream sundaes at the 
ice cream parlor next door, which most people don't know what an ice cream parlor is today. It's, it's not like a Haagen-Dazs where you go into. It was actually a very fancy ornate place where you went on Sundays after a big meal to have a nice fancy ice cream dish or whatever. So we would go see the movie. My biggest problem in life at that moment was the 50 cents left over wasn't enough for a popcorn and a drink. And I always wanted something that lasted, so it would be lemon drops. But then I liked the Reese's Cups, so I had major decisions, you know? And of course, I usually opted out for the popcorn, because then I said, oh, I'll just get water from the water fountain. And of course, that was never good enough, so it was always a dilemma. But then we'd come out, and we'd, you know, head home, and we'd have spent the whole day. Time to go home for dinner. Nobody phoned us. Nobody texted us, nobody paged us, and our parents didn't worry about us if, God forbid, they didn't speak to us for five hours. Different times. And that's kind of like I remember looking back at the light coming out of the window in the back there. <coughs> and this was back in the days where people smoked in the theaters. So the smoke rising up into the light beam created the coolest effect, all right? And I was sold. And if I wasn't sold, I think one time I looked back and I saw them, I actually caught them making a changeover. I saw the light switch from one window to the next. And damn, if that wasn't, I was gonna find out how that happened. And somewhere in there I had seen Blazing Saddles. My timeline may be a little fuzzy, but I remember looking back and seeing the light and actually seeing a man back there in the window. And so it was like, it was personified. Up to then it was magic. You know, like a searchlight. You never knew who was running the searchlight, but there it was. And so when I saw a pair of eyes and glasses back there, I was fascinated. It was a good job. You were your own boss without major responsibility, and that's probably what I liked about it. You followed your schedule and nobody bothered you. And that, that was probably for me the simplest thing. Doing my job and not really having to worry about constantly somebody come over and say, you know, straighten up that shelf or, you know, decorate that window better or, you know, you slice the locks too thin or whatever. I've had many jobs. <laughs> you know, that was probably, you know, I said, ah, this one's good. This one I like. I think I can stick with this for a while. And I have. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check back for part three in the series for more interview with Mike, as well as Joe and Scott from part one. You can subscribe to Manner of Speaking in iTunes or by going to mannerofspeaking.net.